I grew up um, as a church kid. I, I was one of those kids after service, like I was running around the pews. Um, you know, my favorite spot was in the balcony because I could see the shiny parts of everyone's heads down below. Uh, I knew my way around the church building and the like secret passageways that like, you know, only kids whose parents talk too long after church uh, figure out. I was a church kid and I became so familiar with church that my grandmother tells me that um, I used to pull out the potato bin uh, at her house and set it up like it was a pulpit. And I grew up in the United Church, right? So the, the, the minister wore like the robe and the stole. And so I would take a scarf and I would put it around my neck and I'd stand behind the potato bin and I would pretend that we, we were playing church, right? In my grandmother's living room. For me, church, like there was these things that you did at church and, and you could like mimic them and like you, you could play church, are we playing church? Are there just like, you know, we play a few songs and then we listen to Tyler rant for 30 minutes and then, you know, we, we don't have anything better to do on Sunday morning and so we come together and, and we just, you know, do these things and we go through the motions, we call it church, we check it off our list and we go home. Are we playing church? What is it that we're actually doing today? Like, why are we here and not mowing our lawn? Or, or sleeping in and having a nice late breakfast, brunch, reading the newspaper or flipping through the news app, doing today's Wordle? I want to do more than play church. I want to do more than us just having these like stock motions that we go through if we sing a song and we preach a sermon, we get together on Sunday and then we check that off our list for the week. I want to do more than that. I want to be more than that. And I get inspired when I, when I read in the book of Acts about the early Christians, like the, the first generation of followers of Jesus who like back when it was a weird thing to believe that this man rose from the dead, that you were ostracized by your, your community for following this weird Jewish sect where, where you were seen as an outsider. And, and, and I read the story in Acts chapter 2 of, of this moment um, at the festival of Pentecost. Where what happened is, is Jesus, he's risen from the dead. His followers have seen him risen. And Jesus, he, he goes and he ascends back into heaven. And his followers are now are like, now what? And so they've come together and they're, they're hidden away in, in a room and they're praying together. And as they're praying, something happens where the Spirit of God, God's very presence and person comes into the room and dwells in these people in a way that has never been fully experienced by people up until that point. The Spirit of God has moved and has worked throughout history, but this was something unique. 
This was God coming and dwelling in people and filling them. And, and something miraculous happened where all of a sudden they begin speaking in all kinds of different languages. And, and imagine like this group of, of, say, 120 people, just like a bit bigger than the number of people we have gathered here this morning, are together, they're praying, and the Spirit descends, and all of a sudden everybody starts talking in different languages. It causes some chaos, more chaos than, than the front row of my kids here. And, and it's happening during this Jewish festival of Pentecost. And so Jerusalem swells in size, right, of, of, of faithful Jews who are coming from all over for this, this festival. And they're walking past wherever this is happening, and they're hearing the chaos in this room, and they're like, what is going on up there? Like, it is the morning. The partying hasn't really started yet. These people are hardcore. And they drive by. and Drive by. They walk past. Wrong century. They walk past and they're like, these people are drunk. Something crazy is going on. And Peter, Jesus' bold and brash disciple, steps up and speaks with an eloquence that he's not had up to this point. A, a, a way of speaking, I believe, that is directly a result of the Holy Spirit that has just filled him. And he delivers a sermon to the onlookers who are like, what on earth is going on? where he tells them that this Jesus that rumors have been going on about, this Jesus that we've been following who you crucified, he's been raised from the dead, and he is the hope that everyone is looking for. And, and these people are able to understand because everyone in those rooms are speaking different languages, and these people are from all over, and so they hear it in the languages of the places that they come from. And, and they see that this is an act of God. And so where we're picking up is in verse 41 where it says, those who accepted this message, the sermon that Peter delivered, he said they were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Like talk about like crazy church growth exponential metric stuff. Like 3,000 people in one day from one sermon. Like this is the spirit moving and working. But it wasn't just about a bunch of people joining. It wasn't just about a bunch of people joining the church. It continues and says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, those who had been with Jesus and sat under his teaching that they passed on then to them, and to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I read this passage and I get excited hearing about how people who have come to trust Jesus responded to that and what that community looked like. These were people that weren't playing church. Like there wasn't the, the models of like 
what, what we think of a church of like, I'm going to put the scarf on and use the potato bin and play church. Like this was a new thing for them where they're stepping outside of categories and boundaries to follow this Messiah. I get inspired when I read this. And there, there are three things in this that I want to focus on this morning that I'm inspired by with this community and I long for for our church community. It's that they were a people centered on Jesus. They were a people who were purposefully together. And they were a people who were unusually generous. You can read through that passage again, and I bet you could pick out all three of those. They were centered around Jesus, purposefully together, and unusually generous. If you're a note taker, those are the three points this morning. It'll be, it'll be easy. They were centered on Jesus. It says in the passage that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to, to breaking bread, which is this remembering and participating in Christ's body broken and his blood poured out, that they, uh, they gathered for prayer regularly, praying to God, to, to Jesus who had come and been among them, and that they were baptized in response to the gospel. These are like things they did that demonstrated the centeredness on Jesus that this community had. For these people, Jesus was the answer. And, and, and what I long for for us is for Jesus not just to be like this great tack-on that we have for Sunday mornings of like, oh yeah, I'm going to live my life and then, and then here's some Jesus. Man, what I long for for myself and for us is for Jesus to be the very core, the 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 hub of the wheel, so to speak, that everything else revolves around. And, and sometimes when we talk about, hmm, sometimes when we talk about being a Jesus community, we, we talk about ourselves like a bounded community. I'm using some, some technical language here. But imagine like our community as a circle and the outer edge of the circle is like the boundary. And you have to kind of cross that boundary to become part of the community. And, and for a lot of Christians, their perspective is like, well, you can't be part of the community until you kind of cross the line of faith of trusting in Jesus, right? You cross that line, now you're welcome. Or you, you start believing these right things and now you're welcome in the community. But I, what I think is a more faithful approach is to be what's called a centered community. Not a bounded community where there's this boundary and you're not welcomed in until you cross this line. But a centered community where Jesus is the point at the center and we are all a group of people who are by the grace of God seeking to move closer to that center. And, and there are going to be the line of, of, of faith that we cross as we move closer to Jesus. There's going to be moments where as we move closer to Jesus, he's going to call us to, yet yeah, you need to get baptized. You need to check this area of your life. You need to reexamine how you've been seeing the world this way. You need to reconcile with that person. Like There are going to be lines that we cross in that, but our purpose as a community isn't to have this like boundary that you need to cross, but our purpose as a community is to be people together who are seeking to move closer to the center, which is Jesus. 
I want to be a community centered around Jesus. And if we're not a people captivated by Jesus, believing that he's the hope that I need for my own soul, but also for the community around us, for our neighborhoods, and that the world needs, then we're just another social club. And and you might as well go to a Kaylee because the music lasts longer. We need to be a people centered on Jesus because because the gospel of Jesus is what we need. We are those whose sin has alienated us from God and Christ's death on the cross and resurrection is what brings us back into relationship with our creator. We need that. And we need to respond to that. And and, and if you're not in that place where you've said, yes, Jesus, I want to follow you and I need your forgiveness and redemption, like... I hope that you come to that place. And I'd love to have conversations with you about that. We need to be centered on the gospel of Jesus, but we also need to be centered on the way of Jesus. That Jesus invites us into a kind of life. That Jesus' invitation to his disciples was to come follow me. To take my yoke upon you. And what he invites us to do is to live a life with him and by his grace that actually demonstrates to the world around us a different kingdom, a different way of life. What what would it look like if by the grace of God, Jesus was in charge of our life? What if he actually was the center? And how would that look like to the world around us? I bet it would actually be incredibly winsome. I think it would. Because I think our, our world is really, really tired of really religious people who treat other people like dirt. And the way of Jesus is not that. It's a way of following our Savior by His grace that actually begins to reflect the character of our Savior. Man, I want to be a person centered on Jesus so that my life looks like that. I want us to be a community where when people think of the folks at Cornerstone, they think of, man, those people remind me of Jesus. I don't know what it is they, what they do when they get together, but man, like, when they come into work, there's something about them that reminds me of Jesus. That's what I want to be. The early church were a people who were purposefully together. It says that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, but they were also devoted to fellowship. And if you've been around the church for a long time, uh, fellowship has taken on its own, (laughs) own meaning. Where for us, the church I grew up in, we had our fellowship hall, right? So for me, fellowship meant like teacups, and napkins with roses printed on them, right? The fellowship was like the, the it's tea and biscuits. And, and in some ways, I don't want to downplay that because around food and refreshments is one of the ways we use to bring people together. But fellowship, the, the Greek word koinonia that, that they participated in wasn't just socializing. It was a commitment to one another. It was 
being together with purpose. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to this koinonia, to being together with a purpose. And, and it tells us how they met. They met regularly in the temple. They had public gatherings where big groups of them were together. Maybe think of that like our Sunday morning, right? Where they gathered to, to worship, to be encouraged by one another, to, to, to be among the fellowship of the believers. But it also said they met in homes. To, to practice hospitality, to be together in, in smaller groups where real conversations can take place, where you can actually get to know one another in a better way than you can in the countdown three minutes that we have often during our services. And, and like, think about the challenge that they had. Like, we read about 3,000 people that were added to the church in that one day. And God was continuing to add people to the church. Yeah. Pastor, uh, maybe you should mention as well the, the day of the Pentecost. So some people might look it up in their Bible as well. So that's what happened. It was the day of the Pentecost you're talking about, right? Yeah, yeah, in Acts 2. Some people may not realize that's what it is. So. Okay, yeah. Sorry. No, no problem. Acts chapter 2, yeah, the day of Pentecost is, is, is when this happened. Um, Yeah, the, like there was 3,000 people added to the church from diverse backgrounds, right? All of a sudden, you've got this huge crowd of people that, you know, whether they're in Jerusalem or not, they're gathering together. Like, they don't know each other well. And sure, they're gathering in the temple courts regularly, but also, like, you meet in homes because that's how you get to know people. It's when you're like close enough to see the whites of each other's eyes where you, you actually get to know one another over conversation, over, over breaking bread, which I think, yes, it was communion, but probably they just like, they ate food with glad and sincere hearts together. They were people who gathered together in homes to know one another, to grow deeper than you can when you're gathered together as a large group. We're a growing church, not by 3,000 people a day, but we have been growing. And part of the struggle as a growing community is, is knowing one another. There are some of you who have been part of this congregation since like before this building was built. And you, you guys remember being on Main Street at, in the, the building where the, the Church of Scotland is now. And, you know, when this place was built and then when the merger with Cornerstone had, like you guys are the OGs, like you've been here for a long time and you know each other really well. And then maybe there was like, you know, the second wave of, of people who started coming when, when we started as Cornerstone and, and you guys know each other well and maybe a bit of younger crowd and, and we're struggling with some generation stuff. And, and then recently as we've been experiencing growth and new families and, and some of you who have joined in lately, like maybe you're struggling to feel part of community, to feel like you know people. And, and sometimes we, we, we create our little like, Pockets of people that, oh, I, I kind of know you, so you're the one that I'll talk to on Sunday morning because, you know, it's hard to get to know people in the lobby. We're facing a problem where as we grow, we need to also be able to grow deeper in our relationships and to be connected into community. 
And, and so one of the ways that we're going to you know, move towards that is, is with doing small groups this fall. And, and I'm excited for this because it's in homes over food, gathering with a purpose that we actually get to know one another. Like, you ask someone how they're doing at church, and they'll say, oh, I'm good, busy. And, and that is our quick stock, easy answer. But when you're gathered in a living room with 10 other people that week after week you're getting to know one another better, and you start asking one another, like, how can I be praying for you? Like, that's where we actually have space to open up and know one another. To actually pray with each other then and there. It's where we have a chance to, to study the passage of Scripture that, that we're going to be addressing in the sermon in deeper depth and ask questions to one another and grow. And like someone's going to ask a question about the passage that you didn't think of and someone's going to disagree with Tyler when you entirely agree with everything Tyler says. And, and you're going to work through these things in a small group that it's going to sharpen you. And, and, and you're going to be... Uh, uh, we're going to grow as disciples because of it. We'll be sharpened by each other. We'll grow deeper in our, our community and, and relationships with one another. And here's the thing with small groups that I deeply long for. Because every model has its, its shortfall. My deep desire is that small groups would be intergenerational. One of my... One of my struggles of when we did two services, remember last fall coming back from the waterfront, is we had kids ministry in the first service so that all the young families and kids came to the 9.30, 9.30. And then everyone who didn't have kids were at the 11 o'clock. And all of a sudden there became this generational divide of like, I, I, remember, I remember someone at the 11 o'clock saying, you don't have many kids at the church. Like, and, and I'm like, oh, you, you should come to the 9.30 and see the chaos, right? <laughs> and, and now you're seeing some of the chaos. But, like, I don't want to be a church that's divided by generation. For those of you who have been following Jesus for a long time, who are in the years of your life where, like, you're, you're getting up there, if, if I can be blunt. <laughs> You need millennial friends because us millennials need you. We need your experience and, and your kind of breadth of time following Jesus so that we can grow in resilience as disciples of Jesus. And you need people of a younger generation who, who can help you use your iPad That's a joke. <laughs> and some of you are like, no, it's not. I need, yeah. We need each other in community. Listen, if, if you're a baby boomer, you need a millennial. If you're a millennial, you need a baby boomer and probably a Gen Xer just to tie you over. Like, we're in need of each other intergenerationally. And so when you sign up for a small group, I want to challenge you 
Don't just go with the people that look and talk and were born in the same decade as you. We meet in homes with small groups. We're, we're, not, we're not here meeting in the church because there is something disarming and also welcoming about, here's my space. I want to welcome you into it. Sit on my couch. Have a cup of tea or a coffee. We're going to have some food. And we're going to be together. Maybe it'll, it'll tear down some of the churchy walls that we put up. Of I've got to have my Sunday game face on. We meet over food. Whether it's a meal that we share together, or whether it's, it's you know, desserts or, or snacks with a beverage. Like, for some reason, we open up over food. I remember in Bible college, one of my professors saying, make sure that men have something in their hand. You'll never get a man to open up and talk unless he's got something in his hand, whether it's a cup of coffee or a bulletin or a hammer. Get something in the man's hand. So we're going to put food in your hand, men, with small groups. We're going to pray for one another. And this is going to push some of you out of your comfort zone because you're not used to praying for other people or even praying out loud or, or praying at all. But this is going to be a space where we can learn together. Where you are going to be the person that brings the need of the person next to you on the couch before God. You get to be that person for someone. We're going to pray together. And we're going to ask how can we serve together as a group. Because here's the thing. Small groups can be like toenails when they're ingrown. They're painfully unhealthy. We need to always be looking outward. We don't want to develop cliques. We want to develop healthy communities that are seeing how we can help our broader community. So when you gather as a small group, you'll be working through, like, how can we serve? Maybe we're going to commit, like, kits of kindness is going to be our thing. And we're just, we're going all in with kits. Or maybe you're going to say, we're going to help out with the breakfast program at the school. Or maybe you're going to say, listen, there's this widow who lives down the street, and we're going to give her a new front step. And we're going to donate time and, and money to, to make that happen. We're going to serve together. I want to encourage you and challenge you that being involved in community is one of the best ways to grow as a disciple because that's where real things happen, where they come out. And so when you go out in the lobby, you're going to see the whiteboard that's got a map of Eastern PEI and where our four small groups are being hosted at. And you can go out, they're, they're on three different days, Mondays, there's two on Tuesdays and one on Wednesdays. We've got one north of Montague, two in Montague, and one south of Montague. So we're trying to cover the gamut here and make it easy for you to get involved. You sign up for a small group. They're going to start after next Sunday as we dive into our new sermon series that week. Lastly, and we're going over time here, so I need to speed up. The early church was unusually generous. Unusually generous. Sometimes this passage is accused of like, the early church were communists. Because they held all things in common. 
that they provided for what each other needed in a way that blurs our categories of ownership. They were setting aside their own profit and financial gain to help those in need in their community. When someone was in need, they worked together to meet that need in a generous way. And, and that is something that I've noticed in, since I've moved to Montague. That's both one of the most natural things and unnatural things for people around here. Like, I've been amazed since moving to this area, the number of, like, fundraiser events, like Kaylee's, like, things, like, someone's going to have surgery, right? Or, or someone got, got bad news or lost their job or whatever. And there's, like, some kind of community fundraiser or bake sale or Kaylee or something to raise funds for this family. And, and that amazes me. Like, people around here are willing to chip in to help meet a need. But there's something about the early church that was unusually generous. In a way that makes the we'll chip in view of, of people around here like pales in comparison. Where they said, we're willing to, to sell property that we have so that this family can survive or so this widow can be provided for. They gave away like I said, in a way that defies our categories of ownership. They gave in a way that made TurboTax pop up and said, you're probably going to get an audit because of how much you've given compared to your income. <laughs> our, our tax lady's laughing. <laughs> what if our church was known as those who were unusually generous? Unusually generous to those in our community who have need. Like the, this family sponsorship that we're talking about. Like five families is nothing for us. We can cover that. Like some of you could, could, some of you could write a check and cover that and not lose a lick of sleep. It would be easy some of you, it is going to be a sacrifice for you to say, I'm, I'm going to go buy shoes for this kid that needs it. What does it look like for you to be unusually generous to meet the need of those who need it in our community? These five families that are connected to the Montague Consolidated School, some of which, who knows, maybe recipients of our kits of kindness who already see us as the church that provides food and now they're getting a clean pair of sneakers to come into the new school you're with. The same with kits of kindness. Like these are ways where we can choose to, to be unusually generous towards those who are in need in our community. And also, we can be a community that is unusually generous in our commitment to the work of ministry. In, in funding the work of the gospel going forward in this church. To be able to, to create a ministry that is financially sustainable. Where, where we are taking ownership of what it is that God has placed before us here in this community. The opportunities ahead of us and what God has called us to as a growing church family. 
God has called us here for this time and this place. We need to step in and own that. I was talking to someone yesterday and I say, I am so excited to be in Montague at this time and place. To be coming out of a global pandemic in a rural town that's a hub of Eastern PEI where there are thousands of monks and Amish and there are churches who are starting to say, we want to work together for our community. Like, man, I'm excited to be here and I'm excited for what our church can step into as we grow and as we try to reach our community and show people that Jesus is the hope that they're looking for. We have this opportunity and we have been placed here. I want to own that and step in that and to be able to stand before the throne one day and say, I did something with what you placed before me, God. Let's step in and own that. That's going to mean things like we need to expand our parking. That's going to mean things like as we continue to grow, we might need to knock down some more walls. I've been inspired by the early church. And I've been inspired not just by a church 2,000 years ago. I've been inspired by the church today in Iran. The Persian people are experiencing revival today in a way that has not happened in their history. There are more people of Persian descent who are Christians than in the rest of the history of the church combined. There is revival happening there in ways that has never been seen before. And here's the thing with the Persian church as I've been learning about what's going on in Iran. They can't be halfway in. They have to be disciples who are all in. Man, it's easy for us to say, yeah, I go to church. They are people who are all in because they're in a culture where, listen, like, you could get a knock on the door and things don't go well for you. And as I think about the future of the church, and we talk about, you know, the church in the West is in decline and attendance is dropping and, and, and people don't believe like they used to. Like, we're not in a time like the 50s where it was like the normal thing to go to church. It's not. Most of your friends aren't at church this morning. It's because it's not the social norm. But as the church grows among those who are deeply committed and say, Jesus is the reason that I'm here. I think that is where we see a move of God and the spirit working in our community. People talk about what is the future of the church? Is the, is the church going to be destroyed? Like, is it just going to fizzle out? I don't think so. But I think the future of the church is deeply local. Deeply invested in the communities that we're in. And we, we talk about, you know, especially through the pandemic, how everything's gone digital and online. And that's great. And if you're watching online, I'm thankful that you are. But we can't be fooled into thinking that if I watch Stephen Furtick on YouTube and listen to my Gaither tapes, that I'm doing church. What a great combination, by the way. 
It's deeply local and invested in the community that we're in. Man, I would want Montague to miss us if this church was gone tomorrow. The future of the church is collaborative. No one cares that we're a Baptist church. No one knows what Baptist means. And and people see all the, the churches, the 15 churches in Montague... And instead of saying, oh, this is a, must be a very spiritual town. No, it's these people must be incredibly divisive and hate one another because we know that all these churches are here because of church splits. The future of the church moving forward has to be collaborative. Where we are willing to set aside like third degree beliefs in order to unite around Jesus for the sake of our community. That's why I'm excited about what we did with MCC and, and Centerpoint at the waterfront. Despite some of the stuff, right? That's why I'm excited about Three Rivers Youth. Because there's collaboration happening for the sake of the kingdom of God. And the future of the church is bought in. If we want to see the church fizzle out, it's, it's just by making Sunday morning the motions. It's playing potato bin church. And I don't want to be that. I want to be those centered on Jesus. I want to be those who are purposefully together. And I want to be someone who is unusually generous. Generous.